Hi and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast. And this is our second podcast, so I'm actually looking forward uh, to kind of knowing what I'm doing a little bit more this week. And I am joined with me is my wingman, good friend and PGA professional, uh, Gareth Shaw. Um, Gareth, how are you, mate? Very good, Andy. How are I'm you? Excellent. I think we've had uh, an incredible week, which has been... Uh, you know, so highlighted really, I suppose, by some of the incredible golf that was played over the weekend uh, on the PGA Tour. And it's certainly something that we're going to be talking about uh, today. So we've got Tour Talk, um, you know, a weekly catch up on what's going on on the tours around the world. Obviously, at the moment, it's fairly limited with just the PGA Tour. But boy, are the guys getting about. Um we're also going to cover a little bit of coaching and philosophy towards uh, working to be a better player um, where every golfer, for me, uh, can improve the putting and short game area and uh, actually aspire to be as good or if not better than some of the players on tour. Um, and I do believe that that's possible. So, um, you know, we've then got our Inside the Ropes session as well with a little bit of the uh, experiences that I gain from working on tour. And, of course, we're going to be talking about some equipment and some of the things that the uh, the guys are using out on tour that may or may not be of benefit to you. So, um, shall we get started, Gareth? Let's get started. So, tour talk, Andy. Talk to me what your thoughts, first of all, about Bryson winning over the weekend at the at the Rocket Mortgage. What were your, what were your thoughts? Has it been kind of coming over the last few weeks? Well, I th- he's definitely the man in form, isn't he? I mean, it's. Uh, I don't think it, the win came as a surprise um, by any means. And I think one of the things we need to be very mindful of uh, at this point in time is that we could talk about three hundred and fifty yard plus drives um, because it's now he is normal. Um, you know, and that, that, you know, we can't not talk about it as much as obviously we all know the putting and short game side of things is where I focus on, um, you know, and of course we will talk about his arm lock putter and style of putting uh, as well. But 350 yard plus drives, I mean, he hit a drive on the last hole. I think, I think they said it was 367 yards. Um <laughs> to the smallest of the targets. I mean, the, the fairway narrows in, um, you know, with a water hazard that cuts in on the left-hand side. It kind of cuts across the hole, but, you know, sort of moves. If you imagine playing the hole from 6 to 12, you know, sort of comes across at sort of 7.30 across the 2.30. And and just left himself, a, you know, a flick in, you know, and it was literally just a flick in, which he, you know, uh, hadn't been controlling his distances or his wedge um disbursement uh, quite as well as he did on the 18th with all that pressure he hit the ball to sort of inside a putter length and uh, you know made it an easy conversion really an easy win for him it, you know it wasn't an easy win by any means um, but just unbelievable club head speeds and, and ball speeds of you know over 200 mile an hour it's just you know are, are we on the verge of seeing you know that a tour ball, you know, I, I don't know. For me, uh, I think I'm leaning that way. I think that, you know, as much as I'm impressed by what Bryson is doing, and, and I, I truly am, um, 
I don't really want to see the game go this way, but that's me. That's me. It's my personal thoughts. I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's the Andy Gorman, you know, golf show. But you know, what's your thoughts on it, Gareth? I mean, you know, is it obscene? I, I, I'm, yeah, I'm in two camps here. It's great to see the the distance that he's hitting it, and I think from our perspective, what's really important that I don't know what your thoughts are, Andy, but I think it puts a little bit more pressure on his short game kind of 100 yards and in and, it, and he's putting stroke because he's hitting it such colossal distances and I think that's what it'll come down to at the end of the day yes it's alright hitting a 350 yard drive but can you get that 80 yard pitch within a putter's length to convert for the birdie what, um, what do you think? You know yeah, I mean wow what a great question <coughs> excuse me I've got a little bit of a cough this morning which uh, is still a little bit of side effects from my hay fever um, suffering mowing the lawn over the weekend um, <laughs> chopping, chopping the garden making it look tidy um, yeah I think one mm-hmm. you know for me I think one of the big deals really when it comes down to leaving yourself partial shots and you know <coughs> I heard something well you hear Two of the par fives, which were over five, well, nearly 600 yards, but over 550, with a drive and a nine iron. Which, you know, it's just like, you know, I've got a big smile on my face thinking, how? Um, you know, I think I'd struggle to probably get there with two nine irons after a decent drive. Um, <laughs> you know, and I'm just trying to think on, on the numbers there. It would be fairly, you know, I would be looking at fairly close to that. Yeah, I mean, I'd hit a 9-iron ordinarily about 140 yards. Um, so two of those, 280, mm. and another driver, 280. I've covered a 560-yard hole. It's not bad, is it? You know, a bit of quick maths. Um, very good, Andy. He's done yeah. But he didn't hit it very close. It, and he hit it, I think he hit it to about 35 feet on the one, and he hold it for an eagle, which, of course, justifies everything. Um, interestingly, he obviously leads putting um, the driving stats, but he also led putting stats. And I read this morning that that's the first time since, I think, 2004 that somebody's done that, um, which is kind of interesting. Um, you know, I, it's interesting on two counts. One that, you know, that actually nobody's done it um, since then. I mean, that's that's kind of crazy um, length of time. But it also shows you that if you can hit the golf ball a long way and can putt, and I've said this for years, if you can't hit it a long way and can putt, you can play. Um, and if you can hit it a long way and can putt, you really can play. So when we look back in the histories of time, you know, great putters, great long drivers. I mean, Seve couldn't hit. We talked, you know, about Seve hitting threes last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, you know, he could putt. And his ability to be able to knock putts in from seemingly all over the place was, you know, kind of the, the reason why he was a prolific winner. Um, but he could hit it a long way. Greg Norman could hit it a long way. Um, you know, and Greg was a decent putter. I'm a, I don't recall him ever being a great putter, but I don't recall him being a poor putter either. He was a good putter, and I'd say leaning towards very good putter, probably because he hit a lot of shots in very close. And I can remember times where he dominated tournaments where he literally just not seemed to not sticks out all day long. Um, so when you hit the golf ball a long way, you have an advantage, no question. Stats tell us that. You know, and we laboured on stats a little last week, you know, talking about mm. how important that is. And I've talked with my 
you know, players this week as we, you know, my clients, potential clients uh, over the last week as well. And, you know, the importance of knowing where you are with stats. Um, but there's definitely no question. Tiger, Jack Nicholas, prodigious long hitters in their time. Um, you know, start, Tiger still moves out there, of course, but great putters. And I think once you, once you understand that to be world-class, and there's very few players that are world-class, to win more than one major, you have to be able to be, you know, a very consistent, very solid, very, very good to great putter. Um, and you've got to have the wedge game to go with it at times if you are struggling for length. So, you know, the great example of great wedge players and great putters who struggle for length, Luke Donald, Zach Johnson, um, you know, to be, you know, to name a couple, um, you know, these days, I mean, like arguably you could say Lee Trevino, great wedge player, great putter, not the longest of hitters because, you know, he didn't miss many fairways. So, you know, when you look at those guys, ultimately, you know, if, if you identify your weakness is a lack of length off the tee, you can really improve your short game and putting skills to compensate for that. Um, of course, you know, two-time major winner, Zach Johnson, has exemplified that. Um, in fact, the, the year he won the, the Masters, in 07, he didn't hit a single par five in two. And yet he had the lowest scoring average, if I recall correctly, for the par fives that week as well. The weather was poor, it was cold, the ball wasn't running out there, it was a bit damp. Um, so running the golf ball onto those greens is pretty much impossible. You think 13's over water, uh, you know, 15's mm -hmm. over water, so there's no run-up shots on those. Eight is ridiculously long, so if you're not a long hitter, you're not running it on there. And two, well, you know, it's one of those holes that sometimes, you know, putting it in the greenside bunker is a good place to hit it and the gap into the green is, is relatively short, uh, very narrow. So, you know, when we look at those things, you know, it really does say, it suggests be a good putter, be a great putter. And if you are a great putter and hit it a long way, you know, you're going to dominate. And that's exactly what we've seen, um, you know, over the last four weeks, I think, um, again, stats saw this morning. I think Bryson's sixty-nine under par for for the four weeks. Wow, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, that's, mm. What's that? Seventeen under par on average for four tournaments each tournament. That's amazing and brilliant. You know, I think it's just absolutely incredible. Um, do you think the crowd being that no, there's no crowd present, and do you think that's making a difference to these guys? Do you think they're a little bit more relaxed when the team is um, I'd like to say that, oh, again, I mean, just question you pulled that one under the, you know, out from under the rug, haven't you? You didn't, didn't walk. Um, <laughs> do I think the crowd is making a difference? I think the players are nervous. Um, if they're in contention, I think what we're seeing differently there's 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 some things with with some players play really well to a crowd. Um, they like the buzz that goes with it, and I think you know we could refer to to football, you know, sort of in English versions, yeah. and I, you know, I, I don't know whether football in America, you know, sort of American football is is back up and running. Or, you know, basketball, I, I don't know. Um, just out of the season at the moment, so we're, I think in the state, it's the states they're just building back up to the MLS in terms of soccer and basketballs coming back, and then we'll go yeah, into the fall for the, course, the you know in NFL. America, our friends over there are not seeing, 
you know, um, yeah, of course they were. They their seasons had finished, hadn't they? So, um, so we're not seeing you know that um, state side at the minute. So, you know, but certainly here with football, it it seems a bit flat. You know, looking from the outside, but on the golf course, mm. you know, golf ordinarily is a, a solitary ish game. You know, we play with our playing partners. You know, three or four golfers, two, three, four golfers out on the course invariably. So. We're also able to play the game on our own, so you know that solitary sort of game element or element to the game. I think is is golf and the the fact that it's quiet. What I did notice on the course was a few of the par threes that appear to be in the middle of the course, and I didn't catch any commentaries, but they've put hoardings and banners and stuff up to sort of. Yeah, I saw that. That was good. And. You know, ordinarily where you would have a crowd, they've put a banner, you know, hoarding up, you know, run some fencing, um, you know, obviously great advertising opportunity for the sponsor. But, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, to have that to define the hole, it actually gives a backdrop to the hole. And one of the things that, you know, I mean, you've played enough golf as well, is that some holes lack definition. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that when, I think one of the best and worst courses potentially for that would be Augusta. I, you know, those of my friends who have been to Augusta, um, and I've never had the privilege, um, but those that have been have all said that, you know, they've been during tournament week, they couldn't imagine it, you know, without the crowds there. But when those that have been, have, you know, sort of been on a quiet day um, or quieter day where the crowds haven't settled yet, but the, you know, the patrons' chairs are in place, Without the chairs, you could, you know, it's like vast open spaces, you know. And I've seen imagery, as I'm sure you have, these, mm. you know, got this, you know, this great golf course that's just wide open with, you know, with, you know, just vast acres of space, which of course is there for the crowds, um, and and you know, it would need to be there for crowds. So it's. You know, I think not having a crowd there does take some of the atmosphere away. And I think one of the biggest concerns, you know, I think the jury's still out, isn't it? We have not had a decision yet on the Ryder Cup. I just don't think a Ryder Cup can be played without it. You know, you Ryder Cup no. is, is the crowd. You know, it is the 13th man. It's the 13th, 14th and 15th man, I think, for the home team. Um, it makes a world of difference and it creates the momentum Um element on the course it's not just about whether you see a red or a blue you know sort of badge pop up on the scoreboards it, you know it's about the crowd's noise the murmurings if you're the opposition and you go up it quietens the home crowd and mm. you know if the home team go up it becomes so raucous it becomes like being a, a football stadium as against a you know a sort of a, a quiet um, golfing venue so I think the crowds are making a difference, but some players that will benefit from that and some will, you know, will struggle with those that, you know, sort of ride the crest of emotion. Interestingly, I would have said that Bryson was the ride, a rider of the emotional crest. Uh, mm. But, you know, has, has come to the fore with it being, you know, obviously significantly quieter on the golf course. So, you know, yes, and, and maybe that will surprise a few players you know, when they get out on the course in Europe as well, of course, because, you know, even little events that, you know, I've been to where there's some crowd, you know, you get a, a British par three, a great example, you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth, I think is, 
you know, you get a hole in one, the whole place erupts. Well, of course, it does do on the part, you know, on the pathway or, you know, a hole where somebody has one anyway, and there's only a handful of people around, you know, and then everybody comes running over. What's happened? What's happened? You know, you've got a, a few hundred people at least, you know, in a par three championship. You, um, you, you know, you you're going to see these these sort of pockets of crowds erupt, and it creates that atmosphere. So, you know, I'm, like I say, I think we can you know, talk about it and just go around in circles. Really, uh, for me, I think we're missing the crowds, but we're not missing the entertainment, and that's the great. That just shows you how good, you know, these tour players really are. You know are mm. stepping up to the plate you know that i think they've now knocked off their rust you know they're back into competitive play of course you know they're playing four round tournaments they're making you know those that are making the cuts are, are getting into there and creating a bit of momentum and like i say none better than than bryson of course we've got yeah. uh, matt wolf got a got, got an opportunity i had a great opportunity to win but you know got out the blocks really really poorly with a short putt missed on the first green and he, he never really got into it until the back nine and you know he, he gained some momentum but just fell a little bit short but you know I think that's just pressure of not being in the tournament itself um in the mix he's not had any top tens um I think they said that you know since last last year's event uh last year's win you know yeah. and that that will tighten tell on you he had an opportunity to you know to win and you know he didn't quite do it but of course he played you know better than all the others as well and you know Bryson just seemed to be playing a different tournament you know but he also it's easy you know from a it's never easy to go and do what you have to do isn't easy they you know but he knew what he had to do he was three behind to start the day he knew he had to put some quick pressure on mm. well, of course that's exactly what he did you know came out the blocks three birdies I think in the first five holes and you know and and Matt Wolf was, I think, three over through a similar number, six holes. And all of a sudden he was, um, I mean, because he finished one under for his round. So, you know, shows that he could get the job done as well. But, you know, eventually he got into it, but only when he was too far behind. But, um, yeah, Bryson came out the blocks real quick and put the pressure on. Um, you know, and of course, if that's what all, is that all it took to put Matt under the pressure? I've not won for a while. Or, I'd like to win again. I've not been playing overly well. You know, he just looked a bit tight and he lost a few shots to the right and, you know, drove into bunkers, drove into trouble, you know, and put himself under pressure from off the tee, which, of course, Bryson wasn't doing. Um, you know, it made it makes a world of difference. I know something you commented on as well before, Andy, with, with Bryson, but I noticed with a number of players this they kind of, as soon as they got to the kind of magic number, the 100 yards and then, that it did break down a little bit. And we saw Wolf from the side of the green kind of just almost go under a chip or you could tell he was trying to almost lift yeah. the, the chip shot, the gate onto the green. What what are your thoughts around that? Do you think in the tour setting, we focus a lot on the driving, the distance and things like that, but at times we forget the kind of 100 yards and then how important uh, that is? Yeah, I really do think we, you know... Um... You know, and the one thing that we're going to see very quickly, I think, and you know, when I say very quickly, that that could be a twelve-month period. Um, you know, one thing that we do know about Bryson is he's not going to leave a single stone unturned. He wants to be the very best golfer mm. he can be, and in any way, shape, or form that he can do it. So I'm, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in 
some of his training camps, um, you know, during the winter period, maybe even during the lockdown period, to just, you know, sort of get into his head a little bit. I don't think anybody would. I think it'd be a dangerous place to go if you ever got inside, guys. It could be, you know, great and fascinating, but um, dangerous as well. I think you've got to be a special type of person to get inside there and understand, um, you know, what you're dealing with, let alone understand what's going on. But um, he's going to look at his short game. There's no question. He's going to look at his weaker elements. He's a 150th in, you know, sort of uh, strokes gained inside 120 yards or so. And, um, you know, those numbers aren't. 100% accurate. It sort of puts into perspective. He's number one for driving. He's number one for putting um, this week. And he's 150th. He's bottom of the field with the wedges. So it shows you that there's an element of weakness. It also, you know, for me, I mean, he, he, he was almost running away from the field. Um, and it wasn't quite as comfortable as he appeared to, as it finished. But crucially, I think when you look at the numbers and you look at what potential he has, once he starts to dial his wedge shots in and he gets his proximity... Even even normal or gets himself into top 30, he has got so many wedge shots in the game compared to other golfers. He is, um, he, he's going to have a distinct advantage. And I think, you know, the, the tour and the USGA and the RNA collectively are going to struggle to jump on this quickly in terms of, uh, bifurcation with the, the golf ball having a, a tour ball versus a, a record ball and being mm. able to use both. Um, they're not necessarily going to be able to respond. You cannot put players out on 8,500 yard golf courses and not play into the player's hands that hits the ball the furthest. So ordinarily then, you know, one of the sort of strategic points where we will tighten up the holes and we're just going, you know, with, with, you know, shorter clubs off the tee well the longer hitter still has an advantage because he's going in with a shorter club he's easier to hit the fairways that are tighter and he can still hit his wedges 160 yards so you know all the time this element of of um you know sort of prodigious distance you know plays into the hands of a player who can hit it that far so you know when you come down to it if bryson finds a way and i think there is a almost a quick win on this one. Um, if he finds a way to control his wedges, the 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 guys on tour are going to have to watch out. They they could almost be dealing with a tiger phenomenon. And I, now I know you know I put my head up above the power pit there. You know, Bryson's already had six wins. Um, he's a young man. He's keen to learn. He's not afraid to make changes. Um, he's got 14 clubs currently that are graphite shafts. I, I am a fan of sorts with the single length club element of the game. I, I think it simplifies things. It makes practice very easy uh, in relative terms. You've still got to deal with the element of control. And, you know, but I think potentially... You know, single length clubs, potentially your driver obviously isn't single length and, you know, you may well have a fairway wood in there as well that isn't single length. But if you get all your clubs out at single length and you figure out how to use them, I think the, the biggest weakness in the set from what I've tested is in the wedges, you know. Yeah. You know, once Bryson starts to control 
he's got control of the full swing. He's worked that out and he's come back out and put it straight into play. And clearly we can see he's running with it. But once he starts to control his partial swings, you know, then we're going to see, you know, an area of the game that is just going to become more enhanced. Nick Fowler talked about it, you know, on the commentaries last night and he talks about graphite shafts in wedges and this and that and everything else. Now, you know, I've tested graphite shafts, wedges. I've got graphite yeah. shafts all through my bag except for putter and currently wedges. I've tested single length wedges and the experiment is on hold, albeit um, I think more through shape of wedge um, rather than um, shaft. I think the technology in shafts now is phenomenal. We've had conversations, um, you know, in the last week or so with one of the leading wedge designers in the world. And, you know, I think the test, we can test that again going forward. Um, you know, and I think once we start to, you know, when you can trust a graphite shaft because the way it's made nowadays, you don't get any surprises any more than you do steel and you know it may well be that it has to be a little bit shorter for maximum control i don't think that bryson will be doing anything to to not do that so you know i would i would love to see him put a slightly shorter set of wedges in the bag um you know and and to look at the wedge head design so that he can control the flight uh i don't think he won't do it <laughs> i think he's yeah, aware exactly. of that that opportunity um for that configuration to go in the bag you know with his club designers at cobra i think he will will very much um you know come up with a solution for that so it's con it's very much about controlling the flight and i think at this point in time um the, the weakness in his game as difficult as that is to say you know the wedge shots do not finish close enough and he doesn't have the control on the flight from the fairway as well as the better players and from the rough, you know, it, it is very, very poor. And, he, it, you know, when you hit the golf ball that far, you're going to struggle to control the golf ball off the tee all the time. You're going to have days where you hit it into the rough, and that's okay when you've only got a wedge in hand. But if you've only got a wedge in hand and you can't control the spin from the rough, um, maybe because of the way that the club behaves in the rough, uh, when it's longer and, and with a graphite shaft. And, I, you know, I do believe that you do get some different behaviour patterns when the club snags or, you know, the, with the ball jumping. You know, I think that, that he, he needs to just figure out a way to get that control. And um, he will. You know, that's the beauty about it. I think, you know, no question, he will. I think it will make, make a fascinating uh, era of the game going forward. Just to, to kind of put it out there as well, like we're on his set configuration and his makeup, does does grip make a huge difference, Andy? And the reason I'm bringing this up because I met his, his grip sponsor at the PGA show this year, and they they're really chunky grips. I love a chunky grip. But... <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, you know, um, I don't know the full specs, um, but they, you know, having held his clubs a couple of years ago. A uh, baseball bat is about the size that we're considering here, uh, <laughs> and and you know if you know I was brought on, you know I've been playing the game for forty three years. I was brought up on the wrist action being one of the levers that creates power, and to have good wrist action, you know, and and here's something that's daft. Yesterday afternoon, I went and hit some golf balls myself, and at one point in time, I've got I've 
put a, a shaft, uh, I put a grip onto one of my regular grips, but I put one with one layer less tape on. Um, and I, you know, I've not got the biggest hands in the world, but I do like an oversized grip in relative terms. It's a midsize, but so I put the regular, just the standard length of tape on, uh, thickness of tape on and, and put them on. And I could really feel the difference. And not that it concerns me, but I could really feel the difference. Um, and the control that I have, you know, on the shots, I was thinking, oh, with this thicker grip, is it one of the reasons why I've potentially lost, you know, a few yards in my game? And, you know, apart from the fact that I don't swing the club head as quick, then, you know, which is the primary reason, I mean, secondary reason could well be that the thicker grip is, you know, maybe holding back one of my levers. Well, that's clearly not the case <laughs> when we look at Bison. Because if we put standard grips on, what, how much more club head speed could he generate? Um, and he's gone thicker this year by all accounts. Um, and I, I think you may well sort of be able to uh, confirm that than he did last year. And I think he's gone heavier as well, if I remember. Uh, mm. So, you know, I mean, going thicker but going heavier means that ultimately you throw the club head speed a bit, potentially a little bit lighter. Um, so, it'd be, but he's, again, I mean, just shows you the level that he's prepared to change. You know, most guys, you know, would have a D4 swing weight, D3, D4 swing weight in the driver. And I dread to think what Bryson's done, but at the same time, it's also allowed him to go longer with the shaft. So, you know, maybe he still has D4, but um, no flex tolerance in the shaft. I mean, you, you know, they're just like pokers, which is, again, <laughs> just one of those incredible things. I can't imagine there's anything, you know, there's there's a barely a hole through the middle of his shafts, I think. Um, but, he, he, you know, yeah, I think when, he, you know, grips, grip thickness, you know, all of these things, they're all relevant. They're all parts of the tweaking of the game. And, you know, a little bit like, you know, we look at Formula One or, you know, sort of high-speed car racing, you know, you, one tenth of a second. I mean, they, when when you're talking about, you know, the difference between a soft compound and a hard compound tire being sort of point eight of a second, point zero eight of a second per um, per lap. You know, not even you know point one of a second, but all of a sudden, you know, there's a difference in an area of, of the track that that performs on. It might be slower on the straights, but grippier in the corners. You know, and all of a sudden you give that give yourself the opportunity to get in front of, you know, your competitor. Then you know this is what Bryson's prepared to do with his golf, and I'm, you know I think it is amazing just what he's prepared to do. Um, but yeah, grip grip is something that definitely you know look at grips. Don't just think that because there's a standard grip on your club that it's the rate that it's the way to go. I mean, you know, oftentimes I see grips in in wedges that are way too thin. And that's because the shaft that's standard in a wedge typically is thinner than, you know, standard than, than the standard in other clubs. Um, you know, that and unless you've got a specific wedge shaft in your bag uh, or in your wedges, then you're invariably going to find that your shafts are slightly thinner, which means then a, the standard thickness of grip that you would ordinarily experience is going to come out thinner. And that means you get more handsy. Uh, there's a few shots where you where you, you can be more handsy, but you can make that happen in in skill rather than you know sort of because the grip is too thin or is thinner than the rest of your club. So I think it's really important that we understand you know the the elements of grip thickness and and what that can do to us from an equipment point of view. And I think that just shows your expertise. It shows the importance of 
I, I always think of yourself as that kind of medical side of things mm -hmm. of if you've got an illness or if you've got something that you want some opinion on, you go and see a specialist. Yeah. And I think that's the key that you've just within that two minute conversation shared with the, the audience that it's, yes, it's great to go and get a fitting from, from your local golf professional or, or your retail store, wherever it may be. But when you come to these specialist golf shops, and for the professionals or the aspiring professionals out there, it's so important to go and see somebody like yourself who knows their yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know, and I'm not professing to say that I've got all the answers because if you ask me about your drive, I'm going to say go and see somebody who can fit you, who knows what he's talking yeah. about. As you know, you know, I've spoken, you know, about you know with you about Melvin uh, Fern at Four Counties Golf in Rooseley who you know, who looks after my equipment and, you know, even down mm -hmm. to the fact that, you know, I may have equipment sent to me by manufacturers and Melvin will rebuild it for me. Um, that's not because we don't trust the manufacturers, but because we have a specific build, you know, uh, out that we're looking for, um, you know, in each bit of the equipment, um, you know, that I'm going to be playing with. And that's from driver right the way down to putter. So, um, you know, we've... You know, very sort of cautious for me as to who I ask to build equipment for me. And, you know, to the point where I've been making golf clubs from the age of 12 and, you know, 51, you know, heading towards 52, that's 40 years of club building experience in my own right. And I have no, you know, no point do I consider myself to be good enough to make my own equipment, um, you know, even when it comes down to a putter. Um, you know, I'll give it to Melvin. You know, he's you know the the club builder and distributor of Seymour products here. So you know what he doesn't know about Seymour putter. You know, we have lengthy conversations about why a putter bends as well or doesn't you know bend as well. Is it down to a shaft? You know, we had a conversation last week about uh, the CT shaft that um, uh, KBS have sent me to to test, and you know, in my my Seymour putters and. Um, you know, we were struggling to bend that shaft, but we ultimately, you know, found that there was a little bit of a, uh, a I've got an older head, which I really, really love. So I thought I'll put the putter in the shaft into there. I can test it. I'm comfortable with the club head. It's not the same as the one I'm currently using. And then ultimately, you know, we found that the depth, because it was an older head and it took a different bore, um, it was a little bit deeper and it used to have a different spud at the end, which is the piece of like a T-shaped piece of equipment, almost like a little bit of a T-peg really that you put into the end. It allows us to stabilize the shaft, to bend the shaft and, um, you know, create the optimum fitting. Um, you know, we found that that was a little bit too deep in the head and so the shaft wouldn't bend. You know, we couldn't even get, you know, half a degree out of it. So, you know, that's just... Yeah, you know, I can have my thoughts, but ultimately, you know, the man on the job, the man on the tools every single day is the guy who's, you know, going to come up with those experiences, you know, on a more regular basis. And sometimes we like that, you know, if I've got a player who's struggling with a particular shot, it may well be that um, that particular shot itself is, is, you know, I've got to think differently on my feet as to how we sort of overcome it or you know is there a piece of is there equipment as an issue 
and I see that a lot. I see wedges are too short. I mean, I see that a lot. You know, you know, I see a lot of very short putters um, mm. in the hands of golfers that I think could improve massively if they optimise their fit. Um, you, you know, and I think they, these are these are considerations that you know, if you're not a specialist, you won't have through naivety, not through ignorance. It's not that you know you're sort of bludgeoning your way through and just sort of botching it. I'm not suggesting that for a moment, but for you know, for a lack of expertise, you know, if you haven't spent 20 years in a field, field, you're not necessarily going to be an expert. I'm not saying you need to be doing it for 20 years to be very good. Um, but when you've had 20 years of experience, you see a lot of stuff that, um, you know, you won't have seen in the first two to five years. You know, that's just a natural law, you know, of, of experience. And, you know, with, with age comes experience. With age can come ignorance as well, you know. Um, Mm. You know, you don't have to be old to be wise. Um, you, know, you can certainly be foolish and wise. Um, you, you know, and ultimately, I think you can be. Um, you know, with with wisdom, you you're open to learning, and you know, learning what can happen and the potentials of what can happen that go with it. So, um, yeah, you know, like I say, sharing that experience and sharing those opportunities really. Um, you know, experiences that I have working with the best players in the world, experiences working with the best equipment manufacturers in the world and, you know, some brands that, you know, we don't know um, or our boutique brands, you know, to co coin the modern phrase um, that the mainstream golfer is not familiar with because they don't sit in the big box stores. And the reason why they don't sit in the big box yeah. stores is because they're custom built for every single client that crosses the path you know, of those products and, and decides to, to part with cash towards that um, that company's threshold that, you know, they're building it specifically for the purpose. Um, you know, and certainly over the years I've seen, you know, Seymour grow from, you know, a, a boutique brand to becoming the, you know, the number one independent putter manufacturer in the world. I mean, that's just, you know, incredible yeah. but to, to be like that, you know, over the period of time, it, you know, and they won't deny the fact there's been a little bit of luck every now and again um, along the way, you know, with, you know, sort of major championships that have, you know, come across the path of of the players that are using the equipment at the time. It does help to create brand image and, and, and the quality of the brand that uh, you portray. So going back to the kind of the point you made there around kind of understanding and, and learning knowledge about equipment and technology when you were out on tour with clients did did you pick up lots of insights because i know lots of people out there are fascinated with this kind of inside the yeah. ropes inside tour trucks the secrets what what did you pick up from that andy when you were on tour with players yeah i mean you know just thinking about it the other uh, last night actually becky and i were talking about you know sort of when it all started and how it all started so um you know working with players that you know, you know, so you've grown up with. Steve Webster was a um, was my assistant uh, at Anstey Golf Club in Coventry back in 93, 94. Uh, and he gained his card in 94. Um, no, it wouldn't have been 94. 96, he'd have gained his. 95, 96, he gained his card. So, because um, he was the silver medal winner at the, uh, at the Open in 95. Um, St. Andrews. So, you know, and... But we worked together, um, you know, and I didn't work necessarily on his game. He had, 
his swing coach and or his golf coach, really. I mean, that's all we had kind of really back then. There wasn't the specialist coaches out there, you know, at the time. But, um, you know, Webby and I would stay in touch. We have stayed in touch. We're still friends now. We still communicate. I still see him uh, in the studio, um, you know, when he's not locked up in Dubai <laughs> because of the current situations. But, you know, he'll, he'll pop down and get a, a casting eye over the over his putting stroke. You know, so it was working with Webby really that got me to be able to sort of step foot onto the tour greens. Um, you know, on a sort of I'd never say a full time basis because I I didn't travel full time. Um, but knowing the local pros, you know, so two thousand four, you know, a little bit of work with Robert Rock, whilst he was a club pro um, locally at my old venue um, in Litchfield, and you know we had a little bit of a conversation about his putting and just gave him a few thoughts to help him out for the week. Um, I think he finished tied fourth, if I remember rightly, and then ended up at Wentworth the following week and another great week there. And, you know, gained his tour card in, in a few invitations, which was phenomenal, of course. And, you know, he's been out there ever since and has made a really good job of, of a playing career whilst mixing coaching. Um, you know, and, you know, we talk occasionally now because I don't see, you know, a lot of him because I'm not, you know, I'm not out traveling um, and not just because of the current situation, just through, you know, challenges and, and you know, sort of workloads really. And it's more than anything else mm. at home. So um, I do like being in my own bed at night, I can be honest with you. And I do dot the cap to anybody who wants to travel for 30 weeks a year as well. Um, you know, utmost of respect for all of that. You know, and I never say never, I would go out on tour if players wanted me. But it's essentially, uh, you know, those experiences of getting first hand, um, you know, the, the equipment that launches in six months' time into a shop is, is first showcased on tour. The pros are the guys who test it you know tour proven is not an overused word at all it, all the equipment is tour proven um you know kbs shafts you know as i've, I've worked closely isn't necessarily the right term but no kim um, well and you know we've talked about shaft development and flighted shafts and wedge shafts and you know when are you coming out with your you know graphite fairways and drivers or you know don't worry soon buddy we're working on it you know and that and we will prove them on tour first um you know i'm seeing and even being very fortunate to test you know the first week of of tour events when products have come out you know prototype shafts you know go straight into my wedges you know, and and even hybrids before anybody knew that there was such a thing coming. So, uh, you know, getting that very cutting edge uh, in the way of technology is the tour trucks are, are great. It's like a kid in the candy shop. You know, it's very fortunate that Swix and uh, Cleveland allowed me on the tour trucks in the early formative days. You know, the, the first, you know, people that sort of, took me under their wing and sort of, you know, welcomed me were, were the guys um, on, in, you know, on the, on the trucks, uh, you know, at Srixen and, you know, ultimately then you, you end up on the other trucks as well, you know, Ping sort of fairly closed, but I'm fortunate the relationship I have with Ping, you know, in terms of the equipment, having used the equipment for a number of years, 
you know, that have always been very welcoming, you know, a few of the other manufacturers, not so, but, you know, that's okay. I respect anybody who, you know, closes the door on a truck that, you know, I'm not working with any of their players. So, you know, there's no reason for me to be on there, but, you know, to have your hands on the latest equipment before, you know, or the newest equipment, because it's not even late at that point. <laughs> you know, it's not even launched, you know, to be able to see these fantastic products and know that, you know, they're coming to shops, but actually I'm using one or maybe even have one, you know, because I've been very fortunate mm. to receive some of these prototypes or some of these products pre-launch or maybe they've never been launched. I mean, they're all approved, of course, for competition use by RNA and USDA, but, um, you know, to have some equipment, you know, I've got equipment of my own that has never come out on tour and, yeah, is that quite common? Uh, I wouldn't say necessarily common. Um, you know, there will be one or two items that we'll not see. So, you know, things like shafts. Um, mm. You know, the shafts that go into the hands of tour players, uh, largely, so when I say largely, you know, your um, initial products that come out. So when a product is launched, manufacturers will launch their uh, their prototypes out onto the tour and they may well be uh, built slightly differently but you know if, if we the best way to describe it is that formula one is the hotbed for the cars that we are going to be driving in five years time albeit without a thousand brake horsepower engine inside of it you know the technology mm -hmm. that goes into um formula one you know will end up in the cars that we drive albeit maybe not at the ten thousand pound level but certainly at thirty forty thousand pound level you know, but watered down, you know, that technology will also be part of the reason why cars are more efficient in the £10,000 bracket as well. So there'll be a lot of things that, you know, look at fuel efficiency within one of them. You know, ultimately, you know, cars will get around a racetrack, you know, for two and a half hours, you know, at ridiculous speeds on a tank of fuel. But the tank's not that big in real terms. You know, so mm -hmm. the, so fuel efficiency at that speed then translates to fuel efficiency at, you know, your one litre engine, you know, at town speeds. And, you know, there's no real difference on tour. So a, a product will be designed to work in a certain way and manufactured to do that under the most extreme tolerances. Um, but to mass market that product to perform as well um, albeit in a slightly more watered-down version. Because if you think golf equipment is expensive, if you were having handmade shafts in your clubs, you'd be paying two to £3,000 a club um, because the shaft itself will be a twelve, fifteen dollars $1,500 shaft before any markup. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's one of the things that I would be inclined to say, that equipment on tour is right at the very forefront of, of what we are um you know, we will see in the shops in probably, you know, two years' time, you know, but, you know, golf, or, or ordinarily, I mean, I think things have changed, uh, as we know, but um, ordinarily, you'll see that very much a case. Some things that I, I kind of noticed when I, I, I was lucky enough last year to go to the Senior mm. British Open, uh, and it was amazing to get so close to these kind of golfing heroes. And what I noticed a lot in their bags as well, there's a lot of players had older generation clubs in there? Is that a comfort thing from your perspective, Andy? Or is it something that the player just feels that 
they either get the groove sharp and they'll change ahead, but they just like that makeup of that golf club and they'll just keep it in the bag no matter what manufacturer they play. Yeah, I think certainly from the older player perspective, um, you will see that. There's there's the... I'm, I, I'm not so sure that youngsters today are as superstitious as us old gets. Um, you know... <laughs> I, we come from a generation where superstitions or um, consistencies, if you want to sort of step away from the superstition, so, um, you know, term. So if I've played well on a certain course with a certain putter, I may well have considered playing with that putter again, even though I'm playing well with the one that I've got. Now, the, the, mm. if you're at that point in your head, um, you want to hide into a beating that week, probably. Um, you know, but if you're putting poorly, then switching to an old putter, an old faithful that you've played well in a certain event and, and done what you needed to do and, and maybe even won the event, you know, will give you that sort of comfort potentially that you haven't got already with the one that you've got. When it comes down to equipment, regrooving shafts, uh, regrooving heads, um, you know, renders the club. Now, a tour level will render the club illegal, um, so we're not doing that. Some of the players will sacrifice the performance of sharp grooves to go with, to continue to play with a set of clubs that may be two or three, four years old or, or older. Some may have equipment that they've uh, retained some of the heads or they've acquired sets that are similar to the makeup that they're used to. Um, so they're familiar with that head shape. And, you know, I do know... Uh, I mean, a good example would have been Lee Westwood, you know, played with the Zing 2s, you know, for, I'm going to say 12 seasons. He may not have been 12 seasons, but he played, I think the the I-10 was his first changed club from Zing 2. So mm -hmm. I-10 came out, I'm going to say, around about 2009 which would kind of lend itself towards the 10 number being the following season. So, you know, normally end of season or normally Ping would launch around about the Open Championship. So if that was the case in circa 2009, um, then, you know, Zing 2 possibly came out, well, it certainly came out in the 90s. So, you know, he had those clubs, he could well have had those clubs 15 years in the bag. Now, Ping do continue to make old heads or you know from the old casting mold so um so some, anybody who's contracted with ping like lee's been for his entire life you know would be able to just renew those the grooves were worn out after a quarter of a million ball strikes you know he would put the same head the same weight the same configuration into his bag again and apart from it looking fresh you know would know that that club is playing exactly the same as the ones that he's used so he probably had you know, so ten sets of those over a, a you know a fifteen-year period. Um, he may well have had twenty sets over that period, but they would have been the same head, um, style, and design. Yeah. Um, and that's of course another advantage of playing a cast head because it's coming out the same mould. <laughs> you're very comfortable that the club's coming out looking exactly the same again, forged slightly differently, of course. But these, you know, mm. it is unusual these days. Um, primarily when obviously the, the area of the game that I'm looking at, you know, putters, we look at Tiger, he's worn a spot on his putter. Of course. You know, he's won his 14 of his 15 majors using the same 
uh, Scotty Cameron head. So, you know, and he's worn a spot in the potter. It looks like it's possibly indented um, because of the amount of putts that he's hit. You'd say, how can a lump of metal being hit by a, a rubber ball be dented? Well, it's marked, you know, of some description, say, where point on that, <clears throat> whether it's, you know, we, we may have to look at it under a microscope to see what kind of indentation would be there. There is a wear point and there would be an indentation based on that, uh, even if it's just bruised the, the chrome uh, or the finish on the club. So there's this, you know, these, these characteristics then will have the effect, will have an effect on a golf ball, albeit very minimal on a putt. But, you know, if you've worn the grooves out on a wedge, then you are sacrificing spin very quickly. And we know, you know, wedges can, you know, sort of wear out quickly. And, you know, I go through a very healthy set of, you know, number of wedges. Um, that's why I still have to pay for them, I think. But, um, <laughs> um, you know, and I think if I didn't pay for them, I would probably go through some more. You know, I've never abused that but privilege. But, but ultimately... You know, I do. I go through more fifty eights and fifty fours than I do forty six and fifties. Um, you know, I remember that's just the number on the bottom of the club rather than the actual loft. And I may well have tweaked the loft just to get my numbers right. But you know, yeah, I mean, I will typically go through a forty six and a fifty every year. You know, two fifty fours every other year, and you know, two fifty eights every year. So you know, it's just because of the amount of bunker shots I'm practicing or demonstrating or playing you know I'm hopefully i'm not spending too much time in the bunker but you know i know that if i can i'm comfortable getting out of a bunker but i want the grooves to be sharp when i'm playing so so yeah i think it's more unusual on the main tour than the seniors tour i think there's two main reasons for that is the comfort element um you know longer in the tooth and i've played with a piece of equipment that i really like and don't want to change it and then the secondary point, of course, is the support from the manufacturers to the main tours versus the seniors tours. Um, and the fact that the guys may well have to buy their equipment and, you know, they, you know, are reticent towards doing that or they're, you know, they're, they just don't see anything or they're not seeing the fresh stuff that tempts them to do so. So in a lot of reasons why yeah. a, tour, a senior tour player, you know, may well hold on to his equipment a little bit longer than, you know, the... If they're going to have to buy a club, they'll buy a driver. I think more than anything else, because they're they're looking to try and max those yards yardages out. I think they can justify spending that little bit more, um, you know, on a head that's going to help them hit the golf ball five yards further. When you know, five yards is a big big deal on the seniors tour. Yeah, somewhere where that kind of driver won't make that much of a difference is. I know somewhere you've been for a number of years and it's, it's kind of arcing back to that the seniors conversation or the golfing heroes as well as it at Nailcock, at the British Par 3, at yeah. Farm Foods. Talk, talk to the audience a little bit, Andy, about your experience there and the kind of short game and, and the kind of the golfers that, that you see coming through the putting green and on the yeah, golf course. Um, Rick Cressman's a, you know, a, a great guy, you know, a, a stalwart of... Uh, you know, of supporting seniors golf as much as anything else. Um, but more a, a, the passion that he has for short game, um, that he believes that golfers, and I, you know, rightfully agree with him, that, you know, golfers of all levels, of all ages and skill capabilities can play a par three course. Now, Nailcut Hall uh, in Warwickshire as, is one of the 
true tests of short game golf, you know. Um, and you know, this is not a criticism. Um, so I know Rick won't be upset by this, but it is one of the more difficult golf courses out there, which means that you know to to be a to play the golf course, you've got to be able to elevate the ball. And you know we see a lot of par three courses that are not like that. You know, you've got to be able to elevate the golf ball in order to hit it over some of the water hazards that are in front of the greens. You've also got to be able to hit it onto the raised greens and stop it. So you need to be able to create a, a, the element of spin that elevates the ball, but also stops the ball on the green. So it's a, you know, a really uh, challenging golf course. There are very small targets. There are very few, you know, sort of targetable pin locations when the greens um, speed up for tournament play. But certainly, you know, to be able to go back and or to go around and watch, albeit I don't get a chance to watch them. Uh, you know, Rick's been very gracious and and allowed me to uh, occupy a corner of the putting green for the last eight uh, championships there. Um, and, you know, with the support of Farm Foods, you know, they have got, you know, a really significant event with no small purse either for you know a par three championship with you know i think currently it's been fifty thousand euros first prize which is which which attracts the attention of of anybody who can play the game um you know i want a piece of that well who wouldn't you know with all due respect you know fifty thousand mm -hmm. euros is a heck of a lot of money um, to be playing for the first prize. And they did have the tournament a few years ago um, at 100,000, which was incredible. And, and that year we saw course records being shot. And, um, but yeah, to, to, for me, it, it's a, a sweet event on the basis of, you know, I know that, you know, I get an opportunity to showcase my coaching capabilities for a week amongst the audience of the, of the tournament. Um, and there'll be, you know, two or three thousand people come through the event over the few over that week. Um, it's very carnival, um, you know, type of atmosphere without being loud and sort of, you know, there's a golf tournament going on, but it it, it does have the feel of a very relaxed event with the seriousness of of the competition, celebrities coming in, and you know, just that you know, being inside the ropes and having an opportunity to spend time with players that I grew up watching on TV. Um, actually, I'm now old enough to compete with, which um, <laughs> is more scary. Mm -hmm. but, you know, to actually admire some of these golfers that were legends of the game and still are, um, albeit their skills aren't quite where they were when they were winning their major championships. But um, you know, to to sit down and you know, chat with, you know, the Constantino Rockers and the Ian Woosnams and, you know, the late Gordon Brand Jr. and Mark Moorland and Mark, you know, I love Mark to bits. You know, he comes over and we'll have a chat and we'll talk about putting and short game and, you know, it's what it's all about that week. But, you know, Mark is one of the best wedge players and, and putters that I have known and, you know, as a, as one of the tour players, you know, and again, I think it would be right to say that he was renowned for being one of the best wedge players, um, you know, and putters. And, you know, I remember we've had numerous conversations about how well he putted at the age of 14 when he won the British boys. And, you know, why can't he replicate that again now? And, you know, the whole idea of sort of 
putting with instinct that he would have done at the age of 14 resonates with him but you know thinks about it so much and you know and then of course you know you you get the the opportunities to meet current celebrities and um you, you know it's you know chatting with guys like len goodman and you know and, and just having a laugh because he's great fun and you know sort of james jordan and you know of dancing fame and you know sporting icons and nigel mansell and you know keith um, decker the darts player and you know the world of football you know alan McAnally and and the like you know it's great fun to have these guys sort of you know come over and just chat like your mates because you know we've seen each other for the last eight years you know it's like you know we have the week to catch up and you know um you know sort of they can rest their weary head on my shoulder after a good night out um due to the entertainment <laughs> the following morning you know mm-hmm. any chance you could get me a cup of coffee and because i'm not feeling very good yeah of course you know <laughs> it's, um you know they're not worried about their putting that uh, at that point in time but you know just it's a great event you know i mean it's it, and like i say there is a proper competition going on and you know and of course you know also you've got the guys who are playing on tour ordinarily it would used to cross with the pga championship uh, in america so it'd become a, a week off on the european tour so in recent years we've had you know guys you know coming off the main tour and coming out and playing and of course you know the girls as well so you know it's great it's a golf course that mixes it you know for young and old and you know male and female there are no you know real challenges to you know one's ability to be able to compete you know apart from your own skill and you know, it, it's it's just a great event, a lot of fun to be with, uh, with these you know players both on the uh, you know as golfers and as celebrities, and you know talk about their life. Um, you know, it'd have been great to have done the podcast from there this year. You know, I'm not, maybe maybe mm. it gets rescheduled a bit later in the year. It's a conversation I need to have with Rick, and you know, a conversation we will have. You know, what are what are the chances of it? happening a bit later in the year maybe maybe it does maybe it doesn't but um certainly be back there again next year that's amazing andy i don't know where an hour of, of our podcast has gone i've just i've just been intrigued and i love the stories i love the opportunity to kind of pick your brains on on everything put in a short game and great great pod today uh, what are your again, thoughts you know crikey an hour just 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 disappears doesn't it and you know my apologies if it's longer than uh you'd anticipated uh you know as our audience you know we've uh you know it's we we like to do somewhere around about the 40 to 45 minutes but you know it's uh you know we've been we've got to save some of these stories really i suppose for for weeks to come but you know we'll have uh, plenty more for you next week um and we will talk more about the tour and uh, what is coming up uh, there and, you know, what will have happened uh, inside the ropes, um, you know, views on and opinions on wedge play and uh, the like, and hopefully a little bit of uh, uh, an update to come with regards to some new wedges uh, coming our way. Um, and also, you know, uh, you know, why two arm lock putters have won in the last four weeks so we'll have that conversation as well next week um all being well as long as you can remember there gareth uh, you know but i think it'll be really good for us to have that conversation and uh you know if somebody else does it again um you know then who knows but um 
yeah, and I think of course we we're also opening up the European tour at uh, at some point, and you know, in the next few weeks, and uh, so we will look ahead towards that and give that a little preview. So um, I think we'll have a a, a, a packed podcast going forward next week as well. Look how the looks of it. Very, very exciting. Okay, Thanks, thank Andy. Guys. We'll catch up with you next time.